bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day just to be able to gather together like this as your family, as your adopted children in Christ our Lord. Help us not take this special time for granted. Uh, we thank you for the unity of the faith and the truth that comes from your word and your spirit. Father, we ask for special prayers for Bill Johnson and the family. We ask that you comfort them and your will be done. And glory be to you. In your hands lie all the results. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for sending him once for all for us, totally unselfishly, with perfect unselfish love, sacrificing him so that we could all be saved, whoever trusts in him forever and ever. Father, please bless this message. Guide us by your Holy Spirit and help us hear what you have to say to us this evening. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, we go on. What is good and who gets to define it? Part 11. On Sunday, the Spirit pulled us back to look at the big picture. Uh, hopefully you saw that and felt that. Um, a question for ourselves might be, what are we doing in our search for truth? Personally speaking, what are we doing in our search for, for truth? Are we going about it the right way, looking to the right sources? This was very re refreshing to my soul on Sunday because I think it's always a good thing to step back and look at the big picture. And just to question, am I still in the right ballpark? Have I been doing something maybe where I'm kind of off in left field, as the saying goes? Am I on the right playing field? So it's a very healthy exercise and very encouraging in the end. Our premise has been that only the Bible, the Word of God, should be our final say and authority in life. Our final say and authority, regardless of the topic up for discussion. You can talk about anything in life you want. You can bring it up, whatever you're confused about or wondering about you'll find the answer in the scriptures. And the point is that Holy Scripture alone should be our consultant, along with the Holy Spirit, as they're really one and work together as one in our lives. But that's what God has given us, the Holy Spirit to consult, uh, the Holy Scriptures to consult. Pastor's been quoting from a writing about the early church on the board called The Ground and Pillar of the Faith, the witness of pre-Reformation history to the doctrine of sola scriptura by Nathan Businitz. And just as a reminder, sola scriptura is a Latin phrase for scripture only or scripture alone, meaning that Holy Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Imagine if we didn't have that and we didn't know it was the Word of God. We'd be going to whatever we want. We'd be flopping all over the place, you know, like 
Try this book. Try this philosopher. Try this religion. Let's combine them, which a lot of people do anyway, because they don't realize we have the Word of God. But we have the final authority with all the answers from uh, Almighty God. And Pastor gave us a historical timeline to help us see what's going on throughout history and to help us see why it would be smarter for us to go back as far as we can if we want to gain wisdom. So on the board, we saw this uh, timeline of the church fathers, the early church fathers, and we see the apostolic fathers around 100 A.D. who had direct contact with the apostles and disciples. They met these men who were with Jesus Christ. And then apologetic fathers around 200 A.D., they were defending the faith from various attacks and the Gnostics. And then from around 200 to 400 A.D., we have the gold, Golden Age fathers who were involved in the three main church councils. This is the time we could say things were more pure in the church. And there were not so many uh, perversions of truth as we see today. These men knew it was wise to stick to the Holy Scripture. And being so close to you know, Jesus Christ, maybe, and his apostles and disciples, they probably felt that pull even more, I would guess, that pull to not stray from what was just passed down, maybe from only two or three people away, as we talk about the Chinese whispers game. I mean... Some of these people were grandchildren or great-grandchildren to the apostles' generation. And these things were passed down like family, in a way, at that point, very um, close together. So then we see uh, the slide here for the overall timeline of the church and its divisions. And we see the Great Schism, which was the start of the modern Roman Catholic Church in about 1054 A.D., and then about 450 years after that, we see the Refor Reformation led by Martin Luther, who posted the 95 Theses to protest the Catholic Church's interpretation of the Scriptures, we might say. And that's where we get the name Protestant from. So the Spirit made the point that even though we technically fit into the category called Protestant, we shouldn't want that label. In fact, we shouldn't want any label in terms of religion, or denomination. You know why? Because it distracts from the gospel. It distracts from the way to be saved. It distracts from faith alone and Christ alone being the issue in the conversation. Anything Satan can do to interrupt the conversation, to distract it from what's really important, i.e. salvation. So, what happens is, with all the labels going on, with all the denominations going on, there's this inordinate competition built in among even Christian churches. And it's, it's too bad because there's constant comparison going on. And it's also not the most accurate way to describe uh, what a good church or a good pastor will do, which is just to seek the truth. So, for example, we don't submit to or surrender to certain Protestant doctrines even. We're on a quest for the truth. That should be our uh, overall, you know, horse blinders on, focus on the truth and seeking it and seeking the truth and asking for more of the truth 
asking for more direction, asking for more faith, rather than getting caught up in, in the mess called the churches. But unfortunately, people like labeling. It's very convenient. If they can slap a label on you, they feel more in control. Uh, they, they're more secure about where you stand in relation to them so they can kind of measure themselves a little bit. Maybe they don't have to get too involved with you if they can put a certain label on you. They don't have to listen to you. But see, if you don't let them put a label on you, they have to listen to you. They have to be open enough to listen to you because they don't know where you're, stand, you're standing at, you know? And it's funny, uh, DJ told a story in the leadership meeting on Sunday about uh, a Catholic, I believe, who asked him, you know, so are you a Catholic or a Protestant? He was trying to put him in a box of some kind. And this was before Sunday's message, and for some reason the Spirit told DJ to just say, I'm a believer, and you're an unbeliever. That's, that's the central issue, right? That's, the, that's the, the core, the root of the problem that might exist between two people. And wouldn't it be wise to just avoid getting a box or a label thrown on you? So if we're wise, we won't submit to any earthly label other than being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. On Sunday, Pastor mentioned our church might be described as orthodox. Why the term orthodox? When you hear orthodox, think of going back to the original meanings and teachings of Christ in the church. The pure teachings from God, if you will. And not going to anything that's been passed down and developed over hundreds or even thousands of years. Why would we go to something that was developed over a thousand years? That was kept morphing and kept changing. I mean, if you keep morphing and keep changing and you started from a good place, really close to the Word of God, you have nowhere else to go but away from the Word of God. Think about it. So why would you go back to something like that, even if it sounds good, even if it's a comfortable religious system for you, for your flesh? For example, what does Holy Scripture say is one of the main characteristics of the church or true believers? The answer might be love. And is there anything more pure than the love of God? So we go back to Holy Scripture to learn how to live the Christian life, not to religions or denominations that add their own spices to the Lord's bread, if you will. How do you learn how, do you learn how God wants you to live? Go to Holy Scripture. How do you learn how to love? Go to Romans 13, verse 8. Romans 13, 8. So while so many churches are spun up in, in their own religion or taking pride in their own denomination, in the rules that they've put forth, in the rules and rituals and traditions that they've decided are good and holy, rather than get caught up in that stuff, how about remembering that our main call as believers is to love one another? But guess what? That gets pushed aside when you get wrapped up in a religion. Look at Romans 13.8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, 
it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. How about remembering that? But, you know, it's safe to say half the churches out there don't even quote scripture during the services. Don't even read passages during the services. Can you imagine being a believer in Christ and losing sight of his love? It, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? It's what it's all about. But that's what a lot of churches do, getting caught up in the weeds of man-made doctrines, of their religion, uh, how theirs is better you know, than other denominations. And they end up elevating themselves above, above others. But isn't that the very opposite of love? If you, if you elevate, even in your own mind, yourself above others, above other churches, isn't that not love? Isn't that, you know, claiming something for self, where love's, love considers others as more important than yourself? So this whole system, this whole religious system, really can uh, drag people down and away from the simple, beautiful truth. And serving our Lord is supposed to be pure and simple. And it is when we obey the Word of God, as with the command to love. So to confess, regarding this uh, verse here we just read in Romans 13, 8 through 10, I came to church on Sunday after reading this passage, and I was set free by it, frankly. It just really struck me. Apparently I needed it. To the point that I walked into this building on Sunday morning and simply enjoyed focusing on others in our family here and just loving them. And to be honest, it was the first time in a while that I had that uh, simple, pure desire to just obey that command, I guess. And to put others ahead of me in, in the sense of, uh, I don't know, paying them attention, right? Making them more important than you. But it was very freeing. It was wonderful. It was like a burden relieved from my soul, <laughs> which can sometimes get preoccupied with self, as we all know, and even preoccupied with the good duties that involve the ministry. But again, when we lose sight of love, we literally have nothing, the Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13. So what are we doing? Back to our original question at the beginning of this lesson. What are we doing in our search for truth? Are we going about it the right way to the right sources? One of the signs that you are is that you'll be living in the love of Christ because that's pure and that's pure from the word. So back to the slide on the board regarding this overall timeline of the church and its divisions. Jesus said in uh, Mark 3.25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And unfortunately, that's what you see a lot in today's Christianity. Uh, you see a lot of denominations bickering with one another, competing. Like Pastor said on Sunday, who's got the better chowder at the fair? I mean, like kind of like an unhealthy competitiveness about something silly like that. So Satan's done a really good job dividing the house of God over the years so that we Christians are not united in the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 
I mean, think back to the apostles and the disciples of, that, of, that early, of the early church in the book of Acts, for example. They were all united and living in the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ and loving one another, right? And that example they gave us was the closest to Jesus Christ and, and the very word speaking to them live, right? But we have access to it. We can be like that. We can be enjoying that uh, purity and simplicity. So the chart on the board uh, just gave, gives us an example uh, to get our bearings. And in particular to show us how unorthodox the religions of today are as compared with what we learn directly from Jesus Christ and his apostles, if we stick to the word. The question also came up on Sunday, what is the church? What is the church of God on the board? The church or Christ's body. The church is not a reference to any temporal structure. Rather, it is a reference to the one true spiritual body or bride of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 through 4, Revelation 19, 7. It is most emphatically not the church that the Roman Catholic religion espouses. So the church is a spiritual organism. We're called the body of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. Who is part of that? Go to 1 Corinthians 1-2. Who is part of the church? Is it those of a certain denomination that have it right? And are the only ones that have it right? Let's see what he says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Notice who the church includes right there. All who were saved and sanctified by our Lord Jesus Christ. All who call on his name. So really, we don't even know how many people are part of the church, but we know they're everywhere. And they're probably in every church in the area, at least a few in each church, who really have repented and turned to Christ. So that's the church of God. That's what the church of God is made up of. And in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So Paul's like, whoever you are, whoever I'm even writing to, if you've trusted in Christ, you're a saint. You're part of the church. The Spirit of Christ lives in the hearts of his children, not in a building, not in a holy-looking building like some churches think you have to have to be spiritual. The Spirit of Christ lives in the hearts of His children, not in a building. Again, look at the early church. Where did they meet? In homes, in upper rooms, in places they were often in hiding, where there was absolutely nothing fancy about where they were. What was fancy is that in their spirits was the Spirit of Christ and a unity of the faith and the love of the brethren because they had Christ. And it's His children, each and every one of them throughout the world, that makes up what the Bible calls the church. 
So what the heck are churches doing who say you must be a member of their denomination to be part of Christ's church? That's a, um, that's a word I want to use, but I can't use. That is a uh, bold, bold, stupid statement. A stand to make. They're making a stand that their church, their denomination has a right, and if you're not a member of their church, so you can see how they don't check the scripture, for example, like we just read in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. It says, all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus are part of the church. Who are they to exclude believers from the church, Christ's church? It's unbelievable, like the audacity. And what are they doing by doing that? They're segregating and they're separating. And who's the author of that? We know it's Satan. Over the years, men have been influenced by Satan's whispers resulting in division, not the unity found in the love of Christ. Men have been influenced whether they realized it or not, whether they were good-intentioned, well-intentioned or not. And so what results is these schisms and this ridiculous competition. So again, on the board, the church is not a reference to any temporal structure. Rather, it is a reference to the one true spiritual body or bride of Christ. And it's most emphatically not the church that the Roman Catholic religion espouses. They're one of the religions, the Catholics, that say, unless you're a member of our church, this is the church. And unless you're a member, you can't go to heaven. I mean, can we open up our Bibles? It's so crazy. On the board, Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. We don't want to be found unorthodox in our faith straying away from the original teachings of our Lord and his apostles. But when you look at how much time has passed throughout church history and how long the church has existed, you can see why so many religions have formed, because, again, this is the devil's world. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. And the first thing the devil did to separate and divide and take people away from the truth. How much more when he has 2,000 years to work with, with fleshly human beings that want credit? So you can see how it's happened, and it's not really like a surprise. So many men over the years, well-intentioned as they might have been, listened to counterfeit doctrines proposed by Satan and his minions. Lies have infiltrated the church, being presented side by side with the truth of the word of God. So just remember that phrase, side by side with the truth of the word of God, the lies. We talked on Sunday about the old uh, Chinese whispers game where you sit in a circle and whisper a certain statement into someone's ear, someone starts it off, and it goes around the circle, and so what comes out at the other end is totally doesn't even make sense. Forget being close to what was said. It's a statement that doesn't even make any sense. And over hundreds of years, the pure message of Jesus Christ has changed, being whispered to one another without full reliance on Holy Scripture. 
So it's like if you're playing that whispers game, right? And you're talking about spiritual things, you might pass the Bible along as you whisper in each person's ear. So maybe they can read the scripture. You know what I'm saying? As it's being passed around. But no, that's not what they did. They, they fell in love with their own words, many men. They fell in love with the doctrines of men as though they found the revelation or the answer to explaining something in the Bible. So then there's arrogance and puffed up knowledge and you get perversion. And at the end of the game of Chinese whispers, everyone looks to the person that gave the original statement. And what are they saying? What did you say? I just heard something totally ridiculous from that person, which even as a sentence didn't even make sense. What did you start with? And how do we get so far from the truth? A lot of churches could say that if they were humble and turned to the word. And this analogy fits the spiritual wandering of the churches over the centuries. We might ask, how did certain churches or denominations possibly get so far off track? How did they get so far from the truth of the word of God? So we have to be on the alert ourselves. Like, God's here, the spirit is here, the word is here, training us. And part of our training is to be on the alert for ourselves so that we don't fall into these similar traps. As came out on Sunday on the board... Instead of listening to the whispers of others, for example, the doctrines of men, which can be very tempting from time to time. Many of us know it from personal experience. Instead of listening to the whispers of others, we ought to go right back to the original source. That is the word of God, also known as God's original statements. I mean, we're talking about a habitual thing. Go back to the source every day, checking it out instead of being lulled to sleep by even a good teacher, being lulled to sleep by the doctrines of men. Oh, this guy's got it all figured out. I'll just listen to him and I don't have to read my Bible. But that's what Satan wants you to do. Allow somebody to speak for you or to think for you. We have the Bible in our own possession, folks, right? We have the Word of God and of Christ at our fingertips. It's not like we're, 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 we're missing this. It's not like there's one Bible in the state of Massachusetts and we have to go to the one guy that has it who has the time to read it and teach it because he can't give it to everybody and there's no printing press invented yet, right? There's, there's, that's not the situation we're in. It was a time for that in history, but we're so blessed. Even in the early church, they were copying down copies of the scriptures by hand without any printing press, right? And they were diligently copying it down because so we've got to give them a copy so they have a copy. Let's make another copy so they have a copy. There was an eagerness to stick to the scriptures. Today, we have no excuse. So why would we look anywhere else for truth when we have the perfect word of God to uh, go to for answers? Could it be complacency, familiarity? Certainly could be. And this is why the Spirit's been spending so much time reminding us that the Word of God is without flaw. And on the board in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Not just the Word of God, the Word of Christ 
our King, our Lord, our Savior. We go all the way back to the original and true source. We have the privilege of being able to do that at our very fingertips. Remember that. Later on in the lesson, we're going to have an example that we uh, close with, a little analogy. Remember, this is literally at your fingertips. It could literally be in your hands all day if you wanted it to, couldn't it? I mean, your boss might, might not like it, but literally, if you wanted to, you could carry this with you all day. You could get the mini version and put it in your pocket and have it with you all day to consult. How spoiled are we, right? It's ridiculous. But we get arrogant, we get puffed up, we uh, get lazy. That's a big one. But a lot of churches don't go to it. On the board, too many people are playing Chinese whispers with their faith. A perfect example is regarding the church. Many people take a perverted definition from perverse religions, never checking the source, the Bible. Many people just accept what they're told. Sounds good. Quote me a couple scriptures so I know, you know, you're not totally off base. And then just tell me the rest of the story and I'll just buy it. So again, on the board is the snapshot of the timeline of church, of the church and its divisions. This should give us some perspective, okay? This is what I love about, you know, visual aids like this. It gives you some perspective right away. Every man of God that pastor quoted on Sunday lived before 400 A.D. So look at the timeline. It was well before the major schisms and dissensions within the church. And what did they say about the Word of God versus their own words and writings? We saw a humble attitude about that from these early church fathers. They remembered they were simply servants of the Word Himself, and we would do well to remember that too. We're simply servants of the Word Himself. Our Word means nothing unless we go to the Word and make it part of our own. On the board, Nathan uh, Businitz said a number of church fathers expressly state that they regarded the Scriptures as more authoritative than their own opinions and teachings. Rather than elevating their interpretations to a level of equal authority with Scripture, they elevated Scripture above their own perspectives. Thank God, right? I mean, you look at that, you say, well, good, that's what they should be doing, right? We're well-trained. We know that's what we should be doing. And the following are examples of the early church fathers, remember. On the board, Dionysius of Alexandria from approximately 265 A.D., he said, we did not evade objections, but we endeavored as far as possible to hold to and confirm the things which lay before us. And if the reason given satisfied us, we were not ashamed to change our opinions and agree with others. That's awesome, huh? That's humility. Are we ashamed to change our opinions or beliefs if we're proven wrong in the scriptures by somebody else? If so, it's just pride. But he had a, the right attitude. And he goes on to say, on the contrary, conscientiously, on the board, conscientiously and sincerely, and with hearts laid open before God. Is that you? I mean, each one of us, forget the, our church as a whole. Is that you? Is that your attitude? The scriptures say, seek and you will find. When you seek for me with all your heart. 
It's a very personal thing. So again, he says, on the contrary, conscientiously and sincerely, and with hearts laid open before God, we accepted whatever was established by the proofs and teachings of the Holy Scriptures. And then we saw Cyril of Jerusalem. He lived in the 300s. For concerning the divine and holy mysteries of the faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the Holy Scriptures, nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech. Even to me who tell you these things, do not give absolute credence unless you receive the proof of the things which I announce from the divine scriptures. For this salvation, which we believe, depends not on ingenious reasoning, but on demonstration from the holy scriptures. That's a huge statement right there. That's a great reminder right there. The second half of that, what are we talking about? We're talking about eternal salvation. Are you going to trust what a man says, no matter how good you think he is or how nice you think or how smart you think he is? Are you going to trust what a man says about eternal life? Or are you going to go back to the source of eternal life, Christ himself? Scripture tells us he is the true God and eternal life. So there's a very wise statement there on the board. For this salvation, which we believe, it doesn't depend on our reasoning or how we figure this out. It depends on demonstration from the Holy Scriptures, period. And then we have another church father quoted, Basil of Caesarea. Those hearers who are instructed in the Scriptures should examine what is said by the teachers, receiving what is in conformity with the Scriptures and rejecting what is opposed to them, and that those who persist in teaching such doctrines should be strictly avoided. And if we don't examine what we're taught, even from this pulpit, then we will not be able to come to our own convictions on what the truth is. You won't be able to. As Pastor always says, you'll be relying on another person's convictions. And when the bleep hits the fan, you can't do that. You, you don't, you're not going to have your own faith to stand on or your own convictions. You're going to be calling pastors like, what do I do? Because you didn't develop your own convictions from the scriptures. So it's for you to take or, or not to take, you know. Um, it's for all of us to examine ourselves. Do we, do we examine what we're taught? Do we go and look it up? Do you go home and, um, you know, review your notes, go to the scriptures that were mentioned during class, and read a few verses before that scripture and a few verses after to keep the context? Do you go and say, is this true? Is this true? I don't want to miss something or be misled in any way. No man's perfect, even my pastor, even my teacher, whatever. Is this true? I gotta go, I gotta go check this out. So why isn't that our attitude? If we believe the Bible's the word of God. As Pastor reminded us on Sunday, each one of us is going to give his own account to the Lord one day. We won't be allowed to blame others. We won't be allowed to say, my pastor told me to do it that way. Or my teacher said it was okay. We won't be allowed to say that. It's you and the Lord. 
And he's probably going to say to many of us, why didn't you go read it yourself? I think you had three Bibles in your home, right? For 10 years, you had four Bibles in your home. Remember that from 93 to 2003? Like the Lord starts reciting all of his knowledge to you about your life and all the Bibles you had. And you're like, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, what are you going to say? You can't point to another person, even your pastor. Go to Romans 14, verse 5, and let's be reminded of a couple things here. <laughs> Sound like a little kid, right? My brother made me do it. Not going to work. In other words, God's saying, like, you know, be a man. Be a woman of God. Be uh, responsible for the soul I've given you, the... Uh, supply the provisions I've given you, you're no longer a child. So in Romans 14, 5, it says, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. In context, it's talking about what days you celebrate as holy or not, right? Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Does it get any clearer than that? In other words, God honors you for what you think is holy and what you think is not if you're fully convinced in your own mind. And this is, you know, in context based on the scriptures, not your own opinion, right, without the word of God. But if you're convinced that the word of God says something's okay or good for you to do, and you're honestly convinced between you and God and your soul, your convictions, awesome. God's got your back. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Look at verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is why you have to be fully convinced in your own mind. Because when you do stand before God, and he knows your heart, if you can honestly say, but Lord, I, you know, I was really convinced that was the right thing to do. Or that was a legit thing to celebrate. And be like, I know you were. Even if you were wrong, I know you were being honest with me. You were convinced. You came to your own convictions. And then look at verse 22, Romans 14, 22 and 23. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. How can you do that if you don't go to the word of God yourself? The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. In context, it's talking about eating certain things and not eating certain things. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Personal faith, personal convictions. And whatever is not from faith to sin. So again, in verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. We should all know why we do what we do in our own heart. You know, so even if someone asks us to give an account 
as the Bible says, be ready to give an account if someone asks you. We should have in our own souls, in our own hearts, you know what? This is why I live that way. Because I got this scripture and this scripture that I believe is appropriate to that thing. We should have that personal conviction and therefore comfort, peace in our own soul. But you can't get it unless you back it up with the Word of God for your own convictions. You can't have His peace. Not to mention, you're not going to be able to answer the Lord properly when you see Him. So how will you arrive at this beautiful place? Verse 22, having your own conviction before God. How will you arrive at that beautiful place? We have no doubts even about why you do what you do in life unless you go to the Holy Scriptures yourself and check it out with your own eyes. You won't. And when you see the Lord face to face, do you honestly want to say to Him, I was too lazy, Lord? You already know what I'm thinking. You already know what I was thinking then when I refused to go to your word. I was simply lazy. Do you really want to say that, huh? Ugh. And if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why wouldn't you consult the Word on everything and anything? It literally is an instruction manual from the Lord, yet so much more than that. But it really has answers for everything. So it comes back to faith, doesn't it? We must be like the Bereans. We must look in the mirror and realize we need the Lord's help on everything in life. We're too stupid to succeed at life otherwise. Anyone disagree with that? How long do you have to try it yourself and keep fumbling and stumbling and suffering? And Let's be humble and admit it. We're too stupid to do life good, do life well, you know what I mean, to do it right. We're too, we're too dumb, we're too self-preoccupied, uh, you name it. We have to go to the mirror of the Word of God like the Bereans did. And whenever they were taught something by a man of God even, they went to the Word of God themselves. So let's be reminded of that. Go to Acts 17, verse 10. Acts 17, 10. The Bereans were steady in their minds about truth, and they made up their minds to not be fooled by any man's speech. Have you? Have you made up your own mind personally? to not be fooled by any man's speech, even a well-intentioned pastor. Have you made up your mind to make sure you agree from the Scriptures in your own heart, and therefore you can be free and have your own convictions? Acts 17.10 The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Daily. Huh. What a concept. We need it daily. What are we doing otherwise? What, what source are we going to otherwise? Therefore, in verse 12, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. Do you see the result of examining the Scriptures daily? They came to their own conclusion, and therefore they believed. 
they trusted in Christ. It's like, it's like without seeing it with your own eyes, you won't truly believe. You know that general concept? Well, without seeing the scriptures in, with your own eyes and concluding what it says in your own heart, you won't truly believe, we might say. All right? I'm not drawing lines in the sand, but you get the point. How are you going to have your own convictions? How are you going to have your own faith in Christ? Only if you decide that it's true with your own eyes. So don't be fooled by any man's speech because every man makes mistakes. Go to the Word of God. And by the way, this doesn't mean the Berean believers were great. This is what they were supposed to do. This is what every church member of the body of Christ is supposed to do. Are we to brag about something we ought to do just out of simple obedience and love for our master? Of course not. So on the board, let's do what God wants us to do, our God-given duty. Let us examine the scriptures for ourselves one day at a time, simply seeking the truth and coming to the freedom of our own convictions. Ironically, it's for your benefit so that you can have freedom and peace. And it's for the glory of God. But who's the one that benefits by taking the time, a little bit of time each day? I mean, who can't do that? A child can do that. And God promises, if you do that with the right heart, I'm going to show you the truth. I'm going to make you understand spiritual things. That a scientist, a, a, a genius IQ person could read this and not get it. But because you go to it with the faith of a child, he shows you stuff that blows your mind. But again, a little every day. I'm not saying you're going to get it all. On the board, again, it's our God-given duty we're talking about. Let's examine the scriptures for ourselves one day at a time. Simply seeking the truth and coming to the freedom of our own convictions. That's what God wants us to have. Christ died to set us free. So let's continue with uh, one more early church writer, Augustine. For the reasonings of any men whatsoever, even though they be true Christians and of high reputation, are not to be treated by us in the same way as the canonical scriptures are treated. No man. On the board, we are at liberty without doing any violence to the respect which these men deserve to condemn and reject anything in their writings if perchance we shall find that they have entertained opinions differing from that which others or we ourselves have by the divine help discovered to be the truth. And then he says, I deal thus with the writings of others. I wish my intelligent readers to deal thus with mine. Treat my writings the same way I treat others' writings. Looking at it and examining it against the scriptures to see if it's true or not. And then one final quote from uh, Bucenitz. As Augustine suggests, intelligent readers are those who evaluate patristic writings against the standard of biblical truth, not vice versa. We're comparing it to the Word of God. We're not comparing the Word of God to the writings, right? 
So before we press on, ask yourselves this very basic question, which came up on Sunday. How can we adequately define good if we are relegated to playing the game of Chinese whispers, if that's our source of truth? How can we adequately, adequately define good in our lives? We're going to be deceived. How can we, we rely on things that have been perverted over the years, even from the teachings of well-intentioned men? And why would we uh, possibly rely on the traditions of religious denominations that have been passed down for so long, so long, and they think they're right, and they add something else because it looks good, and they think they're right, and they add something else because it looks good. And before you know it, you have a religious monster on your hands of things that sound good to the flesh, even get the people involved in their own salvation. And it's a horror show. Today's religions, even so-called Protestant denominations, are often running ministries in a manner that's far too far away from the source, the original source. And what does Satan do? Satan does not come at you and tell a stupid lie. He mixes lies in with the truth side by side that look and sound like the truth. It's like a soldier going into a, you know, a camp or a unit of foreign soldiers and putting on the uniform, their uniform, and standing side by side with them in line, hoping nobody notices them. Same uniform. I never seen you before, but you got the right uniform on, so I guess you're good. That's how Satan sneaks in to the churches even. So without the Word of God, we're like hopeless. We're going to be deceived by that type of infiltration. But only the Word of God shines the light on it. And the Spirit, of course, with the Word. So on the board, go to the source. If you want to know the truth about what is good, then go to the source, God Himself. The Bible is literally the Word of God as we know. And this came up on Sunday. Don't be um, passive about it. Don't be lazy about it either. Don't be like, let me do my duty. Because we fall into that trap, don't we? I know I do. I'm like, I got to read the Bible again. I got I to gotta do it a little bit every day. So you go into it the wrong attitude. You're like, let me, let me do my, my little duty here. Instead of saying, okay, God, show me something today, please. You know? We're, we're, you know, naturally lazy, we're, natu we're passive, we, we get um, content because we're blessed in this country and rich, and we don't think we need it. That's why it could be a great blessing to one day be like other third world countries. Because guess what? You'll go to God for everything when you're not sure where dinner is tonight. You'll go to God for everything when you're being attacked by people in the next city or whatever for your faith. You'll go to the word of God for everything then. Do we really need God to put us under that before we wake up and say we're nothing without his word and we need his answers? So we are to be like Bereans, and any one of us can do this. As already came up, even a child could do this. Go to the word of God and see what God shows you for the day. And remember, the onus is on God. God's the one that promises to complete the good work in us. 
God's the one that promises to reveal it to those that humble themselves before him. So it's not about your ability or your intelligence. It's about your humility and willingness to go to him. So let's go to Luke uh, 11, verse 5. Luke 11, verse 5. And this is the passage we uh, think we ended with on Sunday regarding the point on the board. And the Lord starts with a parable here. He said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, you can picture this guy in bed, like really tired and like, why are you bothering me right now? From inside, he answers and says, don't bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This is so funny. We can relate to this, can't we? If someone keeps knocking on your door, you're just going to get up to shut them up. You're going to throw bread in their arms and push them away and close the door again. Because of the persistence, you're going to get up and help your friend. On the board, we saw persistence in the Greek from anidea. It conveys the idea of urgency, audacity, earnestness, boldness, and relentlessness like the persistent asking of a desperate beggar. Very interesting. On the board, <coughs> excuse me, in Luke 18, 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Remember, we're told by the word of God to go boldly, to God in prayer. That's in Hebrews 4.16. So as believers, we're, we're, we're God's own children now, right? He wants us to know it and believe it and live it. Come to me persistently. I'm your heavenly father now. Come to me. Look at verse uh, 8 again in Luke 11. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you, fathers, is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And this is all in context of going to God persistently. Persistently. Every day. Like a child reliant on his father for everything. If God loves you more than any earthly father possibly could, why don't you ask him persistently for his blessings, knowing he loves you perfectly? Could it be a lack of faith? Could it be that we don't believe the Father's love for us? 
That's the only conclusion I can come to when you read this passage in context. Why aren't you going to God persistently? Do you not believe that He cares? Do you not believe that He will answer you? It may be a timing issue. The friend gave in to his friend because of persistence. God gives in, quote-unquote, to us out of his love for us and because he's good. If man helps his fellow man out of obligation, don't you think God will help his children, being that he's perfect love? And this is all in context of finding truth between ourselves and the Lord. Ask God. Ask God. Ask God. There's some repetition here. Remember the Bereans? They examined the scriptures daily to see if they were true. That's that same persistence. Ask God. Have audacity with God. Does a five-year-old give up asking his father for something? And we're children of God. These are all visual aids for us to learn from. Does a five-year-old quit asking his father for something he really wants? Use that visual aid to, sh to show you God's um, desire as your father, how he wants you to come to him. These things lead us to possessing the true treasure, which is the heart of Christ himself, the very bread of life and the source of peace on earth and peace in our souls. That's what this persistent faith and trust in God's love leads us to, the real treasure. So in closing, it's only when we go to the source, God himself, and his pure word, that we find rest for our souls. When we go to God's word ourselves, only then are you going to find rest for your souls, peace in your convictions. There's no shortcut, because God wants it to be real your relationship with him. He doesn't want it to be superficial. So there's no other way to find rest for your souls. Peace with him. And even then, understand the answer to our main question, what is good? We should measure everything against the word of God. Everything. Let me close with this analogy. If you were building a house and you had a tape measure in your hand, and you had the help of a very good builder who said, I can tell, I've been doing this for years, that wall is 20 feet and 5 inches. You might say, okay, I, I kind of trust you, you're a good builder. But I have this tape measure actually in my hand. Maybe I should just double check to make sure. Because you know what? This tape measure is always accurate. Maybe I shouldn't be so lazy that I don't walk up to the wall and open up the tape measure to make sure it's measured correctly. As you know, that's the word of God in our hands. Then you know it's right. Then you know the measurement's right. You don't even take a good builder's word for it because literally God has given you the tape measure in your hand. There's no excuse. We have the perfectly accurate source of truth in our hands so we can make sure our measurements are correct. 
So we'll close with this on the board regarding the perfect measurements. May our measurements in life, the things we count as good, for example, always be measured against the word of God, which is never wrong or inaccurate. Amen? It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And there's no excuse when we see the Lord. He's going to say the tape measure was in your hand. You had three of them in your house for 20 years. And you opened them 17 times. <laughs> there's no excuse. So again, on the board, we have the perfect measurements available to us. May our measurements in life, the things we count as good, for example, always be measured against the word of God, which is never wrong or inaccurate. Thank God for that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your grace, for your purity. We ask that you help us continue to seek you and to seek with the faith of a child the simplicity and purity of devotion to your son. All we want, Father, is to know you more, to know your son more. Help us to go to the word with inquisitive hearts, the faith of a child with eagerness and persistence to discover the treasure you intend us to possess, to have our own convictions and freedom and peace in our relationship with you. Father, we ask that you bless us as we go and also bring your word, up, word out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and it's by the power of your spirit we pray.